took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Imagine for a moment being on that mountain with Peter, Jesus, John, and James. Sleepy and tired, all you want to do is rest. But first Jesus has to pray. And then suddenly things begin to happen. What in the world is going on? And what's going on with Jesus? He looks different. Who's that? Is that Moses? Is that Elijah? What are they doing here? Peter, everyone to jump into action, begins planning to make dwellings for the threesome so that they can remain in this glorious place. I can just see him scouring around for suitable building materials. And then this mysterious cloud comes and overshadows them. Now what? Have you ever tried to focus someone's attention? Maybe someone who is distracted or distressed or even hysterical. Ever watched or been a parent trying to calm a hurt or panicky child? On a few occasions during my teaching career, I've had to do this. And sometimes you just have to take someone's face in your hands and say, wait a minute, take a breath. Here's what's really important. To me, that's what God does with Peter and the disciples. They are distracted by their sleepiness, the blinding light, the appearance of Moses and Elijah, the change in Jesus' face, the insistence of Peter to build these dwellings. So God, in effect, has to place his hands on their faces in the form of that cloud to cover all the distractions except Jesus. And then he speaks directly to them. This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. Now at this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has not yet turned toward Jerusalem, but he is about to do so. That's why he and the disciples and even we cannot stay on the mountaintop for long. While the transfiguration is an extremely important occurrence, I think this experience is not so much about worshiping in some high and lofty place, secluded away from the world. It is more about how to live after we come down off the mountaintop. And up to this point in Luke's Gospel, Jesus has had much for the disciples and for us to heed. 
In chapter 6, he says, probably the first teachings most of us ever learned as children. But I say to you that listen, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. If anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other also. And from anyone who takes away your coat, do not even withhold your shirt. Give from everyone who begs of you. And if anyone takes away your goods, do not ask for them again. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies. Do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. For the measure you give will be the measure you give back. But Jesus' way is tough to follow. We resist turning the other cheek when someone wrongs us. We would rather talk badly about them or find some way to get back at them. And we get tired of beggars and the homeless on the corner holding a sign asking for help. We might rather say, get a job or just call the police on them. We like judging those whose ideas and opinions are different from our own. Just turn on the television and pick your favorite political pundit. Oh, and as for condemnation, we excel in disparaging those who look or sound or live their lives or love differently than we do. It can get really ugly down here off the mountaintop. I think it's no accident that the very next part of Luke's gospel is Jesus' healing of the boy with a demon we now understand to be epilepsy. The boy suffers physically, and his father suffers emotionally in watching him and caring for him. Through faith, the father reaches out to Jesus for help because the disciples have been unable to cure the boy. Michael Ramsey, the Archbishop of Canterbury from 1961 to 1974, speaks of transfiguration for us as the ability to accept the situation as it is and to carry it into some larger context which makes some sense of it and gives the power to grapple with it. He continues, People suffer greatly And yet, through their nearness to Christ, something happens. They still suffer. But there is a sympathy, a gentleness, a sweetness, a power of love, of prayer, that makes all the difference. The suffering situation is sort of transfigured. We know as Christians that this larger context is Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And we can dream all day about dwelling in our own tabernacle, basking in Christ's glory, insulated from the pressing needs of others. 
But we will never be transfigured until we come down off the mountaintop and carry on Jesus' work in the world to turn back the demons plaguing so many hunger, poverty, racism, discrimination, despair. The list is legion. Peter and John and James come off that mountain stunned into silence. They don't yet know the full meaning of Jesus' transfiguration, nor do they fully grasp the pronouncements about his coming death and glorious resurrection. We're not that ignorant. We have 2,000 years of hindsight, 2,000 years of listening to Jesus. There's no way we should be stunned into silence or inaction. The challenge is to let those distractions fall away and keep focused on what is really important and really listen to Jesus. Do good. Don't judge. Forgive. Love. And then act accordingly, entrusting ourselves to Him. If we can do that, who knows? We might find ourselves transfigured again and again, and right back on that mountaintop basking in His glory. Amen.